everybody. Welcome back to the Quarantine Storytellers podcast. I'm your host, Evan Maines, and I just first off want to say thank you for all the care and support that you guys have sent us. We have been overwhelmed by the response of people sharing these episodes and jumping on board. We even have our first five-star review on Apple Podcasts, people who are actually taking this advice going and sharing stories with each other. And that is the whole point. So continue to share and follow. If you're not following us on Instagram or Twitter, it's at Fight With Story. Um, Continue to share these episodes because, again, the message isn't this idea of coronavirus or anything like that. And the idea of quarantine is we are addressing isolation. And a way we can overcome isolation is through storytelling. Today we have a really... A special episode lined up and it, it kind of averts from our uh, typical format and it's my first live sit down with my friend Cameron Marshall to have a real conversation and share real stories around race and, and how we can continue to make sense of the, the things happening in our country. Currently we're living in the, a post world where you have the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Uh, And that is just in the last few weeks, Uh, we have seen our country boil over, essentially, in the kind of tensions of racial divide, um, segregation, and the fact that our history is not so far gone. We are still living in a time where there is much racial divide to be dealt with. And the encouragement with this episode is, again, we take a stand with our brothers and sisters. Uh, We unite together and we want to do everything to make sure we are finding real ways to use story as a way to connect with people through empathy. And empathy is the act of feeling with someone. It's being present, it's being patient, and it's taking time to listen. We are not good at listening as a society. And so the challenge, and we'll get back to this later, but the challenge for this episode is to go find someone who doesn't look like you and find a way to unite with them through story. Stand by their side and do life together because these issues of race and and segregation and separation, I believe we can find a way to overcome together. Anyway, we have a very special episode for you ahead. I can't wait. It's going to be a little longer than usual, but I think you're game. If you're already listening to podcasts, you're probably game for the longer episode. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Here is myself and Cameron Marshall. everybody. Thank you again for tuning in. I am uh, the first time doing a live recording sitting down with an actual person. Uh, I guess we're not breaking too many social distancing. I'm from Kentucky. He's from Ohio. You know, they're, the governors are friends, so I assume they have similar ideas of letting people hang out kind of right now. But anyway, first live recording sitting in the room, my good friend Cameron Marshall. Cameron, say what's up to everybody. Hey, what's up? I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Evan. Uh, excited and glad you asked me to join. Yeah. And as you guys know, you know, this episode, uh, we were putting out the podcast 
And I remember all these things started happening with, especially with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and yeah. George Floyd. Um, I felt really conflicted because, you know, I, I have this platform and I feel like I'm promoting it mm-hmm. and no one is focused on it. And I was like, but this is a storytelling platform and what we need right now is storytelling. Like, that's a big thing. Like, I, you know, and there, when I started to think about that and remembering why we started this, um, you know, it wasn't this guilty feeling, this thing I had the fight or the temptation to do nothing at all and just continue the normal run of show for myself. Um, it was, no, we need to, I think we need to pause. We need to use this platform as a way to invite people who don't look the same. You and I, we don't look the same. No, we do not. We don't. You don't. Uh, you're a little darker than I am. <laughs> I've got this nice kind of European paleness going on right now. You do. You have the southern tan, too. <laughs> <laughs> and look at that. It just cuts off right there. It's, it's kind of red, too. It's really gross. You know, for those who don't know what I look like, I am a black male, you know, high top fade, and, you know, very different than Evan. Grew up in Chicago, moved to Cincinnati about four years ago and known Evan for about two years. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I, Cameron had put, um, when all this started going down, we'll kind of talk about each of our reactions here in a second. But when this started going down, um, you know, Cameron was bold enough to go onto his Facebook and share some of rea- some reactions and as well as some personal stories. And that was, uh, was that a difficult thing for you to do? Yeah, it was. Um, to share my story, well, for starters, I have never really shared the stories about um, police interactions on Facebook. I just feel like, for me, going on Facebook and sharing personal stories like that usually isn't the right platform. Yeah. But, like, I'd rather talk to somebody I trust, like, face-to-face, like we're doing now, yeah. and share those type of stories with someone that you can trust and be vulnerable for, because things are taken out of context a lot. But just giving the state of what had been going on you know, and my reaction to what I was feeling sure. right after the George Floyd death, it was like, I think more people don't realize how common these stories are. Mm. And that's kind of what I was like trying to get across. It wasn't, okay, look at how police can, you know, mistreat people and how um, difficult it is to be a police officer. It was more so of like, no, this could have easily been me. And it's not always just someone you see in a distant state or city that you've never been to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and that for me was, um, I think growing up in a very, I still grew up in Kentucky. Now, if people know anything about Kentucky, people think that Northern Kentucky is apparently separate from the rest of the state. And somehow we can just forget the fact that we're the most Southern Northern state. Mm. Uh, Like, you know, we still have that heritage. And so I think when I was growing up, there was still a lot of that idea of like, well, yeah, no, that's, that's inner city stuff. That's stuff that happens. But I remember growing up so close to Cincinnati, those things would even occur in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sam DeBose, you know, yeah. like that happened. And and that was, uh, I think even for me, one of the first uh, closest to home things that hit that was this national scale thing that really kind of freaked us out. and was this new idea, but it's not new for a lot of people. No, it's, it's not, not new. Thing. And Will Smith said at the best that racism isn't getting worse. It's just getting recorded. Yeah. And I think that is a very powerful line because... I feel myself, I don't want to speak for all black people, but I'm thankful that we do have, you know, camera phones and recording devices because there's a lot of stories out there that don't get recorded, that don't get the attention. And I wonder, would there be an arrest, you know, like how would people respond if there was no 
camera footage of what happened to George Floyd. Like you, you can debate a story and hear perspectives, but it's hard to really go against like video imagery like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well, first let's. Um, I want to kind of get. I want to share our reactions yeah. and, and just kind of talk about, um, especially with. It's a really strange time because not only are we kind of coming out of social distancing and quarantine because of COVID-19, um, it's super strange because uh, you were just sharing about how the news is, I think things had slowed down enough that it's bringing a, an interesting amount of attention to this that it might not have garnered before. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, um, it was kind of a reminder that as the country was opening back up again, our problems never went away. Our problems mm. are still there. Like yeah. That was the first thing. So give me some of your reactions. You, know, you hear about Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Mm -hmm. just, those are just recent examples, yeah. uh, very brutal examples. Like Those are some mm -hmm. harsh, harsh examples and harsh realities that, uh, that occurred over the past few weeks. Give me some of your reactions when those things are going down. I think fatigue is the first word that comes mm -hmm. to my mind yeah. because you think I believe they all happen within like two weeks of each other. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, that's like one pay period, you know, like you don't even really get the chance to process one before the next one happens. And so for me, it's like by the time I got to the Floyd story, I almost like didn't want to engage, didn't want to watch the video because mm -hmm. I was, I think a growing concern of protecting your mental health. like starts to come in of like, how much of this can I take? How much of this can I watch? But also, fighting the feeling of becoming numb to it of like it's so normalized that you don't even speak up about it anymore yeah. you just push it aside and i think my reaction to the floyd case was okay enough is enough like we can't be numb to this because i i was talking to my cousin who's a police officer in texas and just trying to get his reaction of like hey what do you feel as a police officer because obviously you know i'm a christian yeah. and one thing I hate is when other Christians do things that make me look bad as a Christian. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. If you've ever been in a situation, I feel like we all know a Christian that you know gives the rest of us a bad name sometimes. And so I felt like for him as a police officer, I was like, how do you feel you know, having to be a police officer and then you see other police officers giving you a bad name? Mm -hmm. And so we talked about that, and he was just as angry as I was. And he says, you know, a lot of times you can debate shootings because you never know what a police officer is like. Um, thinking in real time as things are breaking down so quickly, mm -hmm. but you can't really debate a man just laying there on the ground, yeah. handcuffed, you know, no weapon, and he's telling you he can't breathe, and it's just like no empathy, no willingness to protect or serve him to move him from the ground to the car, maybe, yeah, you know, put him in the back of the cruiser, or at least just like let him sit up against the car. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have four officers with you. If you've seen the video, it just felt like a lack of you know, just care for yeah. human life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for that, you know, that, that honest reaction. That's what we want. We need to see honest reactions. And, and, uh, I know from my standpoint, um, this becomes instantly something that consumes all of your feeds, all of your news feeds. And I, what's funny is I had snoozed all my news feeds because of <laughs> coronavirus. And I was like, all right, 30 days, Facebook has this feature, 30 days, no news. I was like, that's fine. I can do that. And the moment it unsnoozes, it's like, oh, America's back open, and here's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's I remember yeah. I saw um, there was a kid in Arizona 
who took an AR-15 to a, a shopping mall or open shopping center in Phoenix, Arizona, and I mean, it was Arizona. I, mean, I can't remember if it was Phoenix, but open fire. So it's like, all right, mass shootings are back. You know, that mm. was my first thought. And then, yeah. coupled with the three recent deaths um, of these of these African Americans, uh, I was reminded, oh yeah, and there's still a lot of systemic racism, and these are very blatant examples. Yeah, and as yeah. a white person. The, the the most overcoming feeling for me was um was helplessness. Mm, it was yeah. like you know, I feel uh, I feel difficulty in trying to like be one of those people that I've always been about. Let me hear all the perspectives and all the sides, and at the same time recognizing I've been really blessed with a lot of friends that are people of color that yeah. don't look like me, and my life has become enriched because of those friendships and because of those kind of introductions to different cultures and different ideas. And so I feel just this immediate, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? So I think, and I, again, I'll I'll say this a lot because I don't want to speak for all black people Mm -hmm. because, you know, I am not um, someone who is an expert on this matter. I can only share my own personal experiences and I think I hear that a lot from the friends that I've spoken to who are black is, Mm -hmm. A lot of times you feel like you have to be the one to have the answers when your white friends say, I'm feeling hopeless. What do I do? Yeah. But like, truthfully, a lot of my friends, including myself, have felt felt the same hopelessness because if you have been following the timeline over the last four or five years, you know, we feel like we try to do things peacefully with like the Colin Kaepernick kneeling as a peaceful protest. And that was met with a lot of backlash. And then you, you know, protest try to do that peacefully mm-hmm. and then that sparks riots and violence and nobody wants that happening. And so you almost feel like I don't know what's the right thing to do. And so where I've kind of following on it is sharing my experiences with people, yep. which is why, you know, I posted that post on Facebook and what I've been telling my friends who are white is, you know, reach out to somebody who's a person of color if you have them in your like circle of your influence and yep. just ask them not to tell you or explain like what's going on in the world, but just say, hey, what is your experience with race? What is your what are you feeling right now? How can I pray for you? Like I just want to listen and understand. And if they're a safe place, then be able to admit your wrongs and share what you feel. Mm-hmm. And then take that to your white friends who may never talk to someone who's black because you have a certain influence as a white person that I'll never have as a black person. And you'll be around other people that I won't. Yeah. And so if you're able to say like, hey, I understand where they're coming from, or I talked to somebody who's a person of color, and this is what he shared with me. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like those make this situation much more humanized and personal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, anyway, um, that's great. Thank you so much for for sharing that. Because again, like, there becomes when these things first happen, we're reminded of what feels like our lane, yeah, and how to stay in your lane, and it's like, but I also know that people are hurting. And it's also the, the the temptation of being a white person. It's like, I don't have to say anything about this and nothing will change on my end. Yeah. Like there's nothing in my life. Like if I decided I'm just going to let things simmer down and I'm just going to keep mm-hmm. going about my business. Like I have that privilege to just keep going. Yeah. You know, where, and you'll get into your stories here in a second. You'll talk about how that is not a thing we might always share. Yeah. And also I think as... You know, minorities, we need to make it okay for white people to not know what we expect them to know. Yeah. 
because I think there's a lot of pressure to, if you're going to speak about race, to have the exact right answer, say it the right way, mm-hmm. and not look like, you know, um, somebody who's coming out of left field. Yeah. And so just finding someone you can talk to and have those open conversations where you feel like you're able to just talk and it doesn't have to be um, perfect yeah. has been good for me. story starts when um, I was 16 and I was living in Indiana at the time. Small town. If you ever lived in a small town, you know there's not a lot to do when you're 16 and can't really do stuff. (laughs) And so one of my friends bought an airsoft gun and he thought it was the coolest thing ever. So naturally we all were like, well, we're getting airsoft guns too. And so we're doing the, we'll go over to his house. Uh, A couple of us are, I think, me and one of my other friends was black, and then there were three white friends. Mm-hmm. So we were just hanging out. You know, you do the whole, like, challenge stuff. I bet I can hit that can more times than you can. Yep. And then it turns into, all right, well, let's divide in teams and cops and robbers and chase each other around yep. the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that, and I guess some people, you know, looked outside their window and saw these kids running around with guns and got terrified and called the police. Mm. And Someone probably named Karen. So, more than likely. <laughs> and so the police, and and I want to, as I was reflecting on the story the other day, I think this might have been what made the interaction, you know, more successful for myself than people, you know, and articles I've read in the past. Because yes. we were just finishing really like our, gu- like our game. Like mm-hmm. we were rounding up, we were getting done. I rode with my friend who was black and he had just set, just opened his door, set in his car and he was waiting for me to get to the car door and get in the car too. Mm-hmm. So I throw my gun into the car first. And then all of a sudden the police officers pull up and there's like three cars that pull up all at the same time. And before I know it hit me, they're getting out of the cars with their guns. And they're screaming, get on the ground. And I just obviously instantly just was on the ground, my hands out. And then there was a knee in my back. My hands were handcuffed behind me. And I felt a gun to the back of my neck saying, don't move. Wow. At this point, you know, it felt like I was in a movie. It all happened so fast that mm-hmm. I really didn't have time to react or say anything. And the next thing I remember is hearing one of the other police officers saying that they're toy guns, they're toy guns. And so then the police officer put his gun in his holster, you know, picked me and my friend up. He was also handcuffed and had the same treatment. And they uncuffed us and said, you know, we were lucky because it's really hard to tell if an airsoft gun is real or not and that they could have shot us before they figured it out. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with, you know, other stories like this, there was a story out of Cleveland, Ohio from 2012 uh, with um, Tamir Rice, who was a young African-American 12-year-old kid who was playing with a airsoft gun and the police in that situation weren't able to figure out if it was a toy or not before Mm -hmm. they fired and they ultimately killed him and so for me my story happened about three years before that and so thinking about how that could have been me and trying to just like go through some survivor skill of Mm -hmm. like why was he able to why did he pass away and i didn't you know and Really, I didn't have an explanation, and I just kind of thought about, well, I threw my gun in my car before the police officer got there, 
And I wonder if that saved my life. Just that small action. That small action. Yeah. Like had it had the police got there, you know, 10, 15 minutes earlier while we were still running around the mm-hmm. park or uh, a moment earlier when I was still walking to the car with the gun, I wonder if they would have had the same patience. But since they could see, you know, one of my friends in the car and then me with no gun standing, I wonder if that was what, you know, allowed their strength to happen for me to still be able to be here to tell the story. Yeah. And what did you, when that was over and you're free to go and they just let you go, like what mm-hmm. happens after that? So, uh, so me and my friend had to wait there until, um, our parents arrived because we were minors and we were underage. Mm-hmm. Uh, my white friends who also had the same guns we had, they just took off running and no one chased them. No one to this day, no one asked them why they had guns. There's no follow up. And so I, I think for me, did you, real quick, did you guys try to run? No. So you guys stayed and your your white friends took off. They took off. They were closer to the house, mm-hmm. so they did have a few, you know, feet away from the curb where the yeah. police pulled up. But I still think if I was standing with them, I wouldn't have ran because my parents always told me, you know, never run from the cops. Yeah. And I feel like me doing that would have, you know, sparked more of a reaction from sure. them than probably yeah. what we had gotten. And so for me, I just waited for my parents and, you know had to end up going to the police station because my parents weren't picking up and then finally my mom you know got there and my mom is an old school civil rights leader from mississippi and she was pissed (laughs) (laughs) and she let those police officers have it and i was i thought i was gonna get in trouble but i could see that my mom was very upset and then after that we had like a long conversation of how to interact with police Mm -hmm. and just like um knowing the difference of like how you're viewed as a young black man versus how you sometimes get the benefit of doubt when you're a young, you know, Caucasian male. Yeah. And was that, so it sounded like, did you have a handful of more white friends or uh, was it kind of equal? Like, okay, I have some friends of color. I have some friends who are white. Yeah. I, I feel like I've always had, I've always been in the middle. Like Mm -hmm. I, um, very much relate to black culture and being a black male. My, mm-hmm. Both my parents are black, even though a lot of people, if you look at me, will think I'm mixed. Yep. And I've had people ask me, so which one of your parents are white? Because they just can't figure yeah. out like my skin tone yeah. and why I'm so light. But, you know, I grew up in Chicago in a all white neighborhood because my dad's grandmother had to buy our house because she was lighter than I am and she was able to pass as a white woman. And so you weren't allowed to live in the neighborhood we lived in if you were black, but my dad's grandmother being a judge and looking white was able to buy the house and then sell it to my parents. And so I grew up with a lot of advantages that a lot of people, kids my skin color, did not grow up with in Chicago. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's that's crazy. That is... um, but so that happened. Yeah, I mean, that was that was like the, this idea that just the small unconscious decisions you made may have uh, they, they altered the outcome of that situation. Yeah, and yeah. I think it definitely left this mark on me as far as how I view guns and play guns. And you know, now I have a daughter who's eight, mm-hmm. and I struggle with allowing her to play with guns. Like it's just something that has left an impact on me to where. You know, that was a very traumatizing experience. And like then the next day to have to go to school 
and like everyone knows about it and talks yeah. about it and they're like yeah. dude you almost got shot man and it's like it just makes it even worse and yeah. so i think for me it almost was just like uh it, fe- it didn't feel real for a while and then uh the rice story happened and it yeah. was almost like oh no like this doesn't always have a happy ending the mm-hmm. way my story did like very yeah. easily could have gone the other way I wanted to take a quick break before we jump into Cameron's second story and tell you that there are some tangible ways that we can take our resources and put them into action now. Now, I understand that we are not partnered or affiliated with this particular movement, but one way that I have looked into is a way that our money can fuel change. Our resources, we give our money and our resources to things that can fuel change. And what you can do right now is you can go to blacklivesmatter.com and you can donate to them. They are our resource. They're on the front line in fighting this injustice. And they're giving us the latest information and education on how we can continue to have these conversations around racial inequality and racial injustice. Now, I understand that some people listening to this right now may be threatened by that phrase, Black Lives Matter. But I want to reassure you that before all lives matter, Black lives must matter. So do not look at this as a bipartisan issue. Try and challenge yourself to look at this and say, if there is a minority of people who help make up the DNA of this country that do not feel equal, we have to do what we can do to bring, um, to lift them up. Black lives truly matter. Like I said, you can go to blacklivesmatter.com to donate today. Again, we are not affiliated with them. They're not a partner of this episode. I wanted to give you a real tangible way to move forward. All right, back to Cameron's story. So the second story yeah. takes place, and you're in college now at this point. Yeah. Tell us about that. So at this point, I'm between 21, 22, probably 22, senior year of college, and um, I go into a school in Indiana where it wasn't a large like student bod- black student body, mm-hmm. and my mom actually was a teacher there. And she advised me not to go because she's like, I don't think you're going to like it. It's not going to be enough black people. And I was like, Mom, I'm not going to choose a school over that. <laughs> and it was a great experience. Yep. I met some of my best friends, lifelong friends, some who were black, some who were white. And one of my best friends who was also black, you know, senior year, we were like, okay, we're going to go out, you know, living together and having a good time because we hadn't lived together like our entire college career. And so we found this great apartment like right on the main strip, like they're right across from all the main bars. And so we had people coming and going all the time because they would stop and get a beer, stop and yeah. get a drink, yeah. be doing something. And they're like, oh, well, I'm going to go see Cameron and hang out at his place. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, being someone who likes to look out for his friends, it's like, hey, if you're, you know, really drunk and you know that you can't drive home, just my door is always open. Come in, crash for a couple hours, sober up or stay the night if you need to, because I'd rather you be safe than endangering yourself or endangering someone else. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess this constant coming and going of people who were mostly black men um, became suspicious to police officers because one day one of my friends who was black was uh, over at my apartment just hanging out before class. And then he leaves to go to class and a police officer stops him and starts talking to him. Is like, hey, what are you doing over there? And he's like, uh, just hanging out with my friends. And he was like, well, what'd you buy? And he was like, mm-hmm. nothing. And he was like, well, are you sure? Like, why do you, why, why are you over there? And he's like, I'm just 
and I'm just leaving my friend's house and going to, you know, class, sir. And so he lets him go, the police officers. I guess they just want to have a conversation and talk to him. And so after he gets, you know, far enough away from them, he calls me on his way to class and he's like, hey, Cameron, like, tells me the whole story. And he's like, I just want you to know, like, I feel like the police are watching your apartment. So be careful about who you have over there. Be careful about what you're doing because, you know, they're watching you. Mm. And it almost didn't feel weird, real. It felt like an episode of The Wire, <laughs> like from HBO. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, like, oh, the bust is coming. You, you know, the police are watching you, you know. Yeah. And I, in, my, in my mind, I'm somebody, like, I've never bought drugs from anyone. I've never, like, been the type of person to sell drugs, never at this point in my life, or even now committed a crime or been arrested so I'm thinking, like, maybe they just made a poor judgment mistake stopping him. And, like, there's nothing to really worry about because I know I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, probably, like, two or three weeks go by. And my roommate's cousin is in town, hanging out, staying over at the apartment. Yes. And he locks himself out of the apartment. And we live on the first floor. My roommate keeps his uh, his window open because, you know... It's hot, and we're college students. We don't have a lot of money, so we don't want to keep the AC on, just burning money. <laughs> Understood. And so he goes through the window to get into the apartment, and I guess the police must have still been watching the house because they use this as the time to break into the apartment. And I mean, it must have been literally less than a minute then by the time he got through the window, they were in the front door. And, it, and it's like early in the morning. Um, I'm sleeping in my bed. And so I hear my door open to my bedroom and I have like those, uh, like those midnight, like black curtains. So it's like, there's like no light in my room, yeah. even though it's like in the morning. And all I see is like this flashlight just pointing in my face and like someone telling me to get up. And so I'm thinking one of my friends is being like just a total jerk and like, you know, trying to make me upset and be like, yo, wake up, wake up, Cameron. And, and so I'm like, no, like I'm going back to sleep. And I even like respond to a police officer, like I'm sleeping, like leave me alone. And then his voice gets louder and he gets closer. And as I look over this time, I'm able to make out the gun behind the flashlight. And I'm like, oh, this is a real situation. (laughs) And then I see the badge and I see it's a police officer. And so I slowly get up. And mind you, I'm in my apartment, so I'm sleeping in my boxers, like basically no clothes on. And the guy walks over to me, handcuffs me, and he's like, what are you doing in the apartment? And I'm like, sleeping? And he's like, so you didn't break in here? And I'm like, yes, I broke in here and took my clothes (laughs) off and decided to go to sleep. Like, that's exactly what I would do as a robber, is what I'm thinking in my head. Obviously, I didn't say this out loud. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm sleeping. Like, I just, you literally just woke me up. I'm sleeping. And he's like, okay, well, and I was like, I live here. And he's like, okay, well, prove it. And in my mind, I'm like, well, how am I supposed to prove I live here if you don't take my word for it? But at that moment, I saw my keys on my dresser. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, there's my keys right there. Like, like you could test it on the door if you want. And he was like, okay. And he's like, well, I need some ID. And I was like, well, there's my wallet next to my keys. My ID's in there. So yeah. he grabs my wallet, looks at my ID. Then he, like, grabs me by the arm, puts, brings me to the living room, sits me on the couch. And I see my roommate and my cousin or not my cousin, his cousin, yeah, handcuffed, sitting on the couch next to me. And I'm just like looking at them like, dude, what is going on? Like, what did you guys do? <laughs> what, yeah. what, what is happening? Why do they think we broke into, you know, our own apartment? 
and at this point, you know, no one's talking to us, and you know, there's two other police officers who are just like tearing the place apart. Yeah. I mean, they're like looking under the other couch. They're like opening up like dressers and cabinets and like just ripping stuff up. And I'm just so confused of why, if you know, we are the people that you think robbed the place, why you guys are making a scene right now. Yeah. And so finally, they come back and they're like, you know, what are you guys doing in this apartment? Like blah blah. blah same questions, and we answered that we lived there again. And they're like, well, do you know that these apartments are for students? And they looked at us like, why are you living here? Like you're, you guys, are you students or what? Wow. And we're like, yeah, we're seniors. Like, this is our senior year. We've been here for four years. And they were like, oh, we need to see some student ID. So we, me and my roommate both put our student identification out. And his cousin wasn't a student, but we explained that he was visiting. And so they unhandcuffed us. They let us go. And they gave, like, a brief apology. It was like, sorry for bothering you, but you shouldn't be going through windows is what they said. They said they yeah. saw him, his cousin go through a window, and they assumed that he was breaking into the apartment. And so mm-hmm. they were coming in to stop a break-in. And I'm like, thank you, I guess. And like, part of me is thinking, okay, that's a good reason for coming in sure. if you wanted to serve and protect us. But then why you know, rip apart our apartment if you could see there was no threat? No one had any weapons. There, Everyone in the apartment was accounted for. And the only ex- explanation I could come up with, with, which is what I assumed, was what my friend had just told me, which was they thought we were selling drugs. Because yeah. they asked him, did you buy anything mm-hmm. just a couple weeks before? They're seeing a lot of people coming and going, and they see this apartment, and they're like, ah, I don't feel like they're students. Like, they got to be doing something else. And they're trying to, you know, sell drugs from campus. Yeah. And I feel like they were waiting for this opportunity to, you know, pretty much racially profile our apartment, come into the apartment, and then um, find some drugs in the apartment. Mm-hmm. And when they didn't find any, then they were like, all right, well, I guess we made a mistake and we're moving on. And I never saw the police outside our apartment again after that. Like, that, they did that, and it was almost like they checked the box and was like, all right, they're, we, they're good. Like, we're yeah. not going to harass them anymore. And for me... It almost didn't really register what happened because I was kind of like, man, I'm lucky to be alive. Like, that was, like, crazy. Like, who do you talk to about something like that? Mm -hmm. And then just recently with the Louisville story and Breonna Taylor. Yeah, I was thinking about that, yeah. It it hit me of how, like, unnormal that was because if you're unfamiliar with the story, she's a woman who was sleeping and the police um, went on the wrong apartment for their raid mm-hmm. and she was killed during um their search and so thinking about me you know being asleep and the police officers obviously like have a heightened level of intensity because they're expecting a threat when they come through the door yeah and then me being completely oblivious sleeping thinking mm-hmm. someone's messing with me i could have very easily been you know somebody who wasn't compliant in this situation and was shot while sleeping in his apartment because, you know, I wake up and I see a police officer and I don't recognize him and yeah. I'm, you know, not responsive right away. Mm-hmm. And he could have been very, you know, easily triggered in that moment, but he showed restraint and what gave me the chance to, you know, explain who I was and what yeah. I was doing there. 
and I'm still here to, you know, be able to tell that story. Yeah. What strikes me is there's a humility with you sharing that story. Uh, and, and the way you've at least shared it with me is it's not trying to like peg someone and trying to get like, you know, you told me like your mom is, uh, you know, civil rights leader essentially. And so you've told these stories in a way that you both times have tried to find ways to choose trust over suspicion in both Mm -hmm. of these cases. Is that difficult now? Like the more you tell these stories, the more you look at the current climate, is it difficult to still choose trust over suspicion? Again, I am a a Christian, so I have to put everything through the Christian lens Mm -hmm. of how I view God and grace. And again, I think there is a lot of Christians who give um, good Christians a bad name. And, you know, I work for a church and I work for a church that is all about running after people who have given up on the church, but not on God. Mm -hmm. And so we deal with a lot of people who have church baggage, who have been hurt by the church, who you know, have every reason to not trust us or give us a chance to talk to them or share the gospel with them. And I feel like talking with my mom the other day, um, because her dad, my granddad, was uh, a black police chief in the state of Mississippi. Hmm. And he um, fought really hard to bring, you know, that state together that has a long history, long, dark history. And so... I know that there's police officers that would give their life for their communities. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't want to peg all police officers as, you know, these men who are just out to kill minorities because they're racist. Yeah. But I understand that there are other other police officers who, you know, for whatever reason, lack of judgment, you know, their upbringing, their character is different than the good police officers. And there is a lot of over-policing and there's a lot of stories that don't end the way mine do. Yeah. And so when I just look at my experiences, I'm able to see that I believe that the racial stereotype of, you know, black men all being in this apartment or, you know, me and my friends at 16 having guns looked like threats to police officers. Mm -hmm. And I'm also able to see that, you know, there has been moments where police officers have, you know, helped me in my life. And so I don't want to be bitter and angry, sure. but at the same time, I am hurt that this continues to happen to people who look like me all across the country mm. and looking for a way to share those stories. Because really what I want people to understand that, you know, people aren't crazy who say these things happen because I feel like a lot of my conversation with my white friends are like, I just never would have expected that to happen to you because in their mind... You know, if you, that only happens to people who have a criminal background, who have a criminal history, who Mm -hmm. have a reason for looking like they should be up to no good or they're stuck in poverty and, you know, they're over police because of the neighborhood they live in. But for me, I grew up in a nice neighborhood. Um, I went to college, never committed any crime. And yet I still have these stories to share, which just shows you it's not about like, um, really your background and your character it really is the color of your skin because yeah. that is what they are seeing in these moments and that's what makes it kind of hard to trust when you always are being aware of like am i being a threat right now to somebody that could put me in a situation where i have to you know be fearful for my life 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we are limited on time. Uh, Cameron's got something to go to at three, and so I want to get him there. Uh, but I would love if, for the people who are listening, give us a, just a couple just good, like simple, tangible next steps that once like you're done listening to this, you can go do. You can go do. And I think some people look at uh, A to Z. Like if A is like where I'm at right now and Z is changing the world, yeah. they, they, they don't look between. They don't see what they're supposed to do mm. right now. So yeah. what can you tell people that they should do out of this? I don't know. I feel like the climate's changing every day. Sure. So by the time yep. this podcast comes out, there may be something totally different that you can do that I might not even think of. Yeah. Um, I can just say what's working for me right now is um, one of my mentors asked me to join him in a 21 day of prayer and fasting yep. that we are doing because we believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the power of fasting. And, and even if someone's not religious or Christian, like they can, uh, there is power in meditation, be able yeah. to fast and, and yeah. put, uh, sacrificing time to put effort towards, well, let me be considerate of this thing. So, um, but yeah, prayer and fasting, absolutely. Yeah. And then there's, the real step is just talking to people. I feel like that's the biggest thing, like this podcast, sharing your story. Even if you don't have, um, you know, a, a negative interaction with police, like I do, like I've seen people who are white share stories just around the things that they have done where they didn't have to worry about the police stopping them. Like mm-hmm. the crimes they committed when they were 16 or the dumb things that they know. They're like, if I was black, I honestly, I probably wouldn't have got away with that. And mm. just being honest and real of like, hey, there's a different reality for, you know, black teens, black kids, black men, black women yes. than, you know, we are seeing in America. And I feel like the more we highlight that, then the more, you know, people are going to open their hearts to actually see what's going on and to have a conversation around how we can make changes. Great. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I appreciate hey, your you, first official live guest sitting down and recording an actual room hanging out with someone. It's so nice. Yeah. And the fact that you, for me, as a white person, uh, we can be so afraid of other people who don't look like us. We can feel so guilty because we feel like we're coming from a heritage of pain and guilt and like with not just, you know, with religion, with race, like yeah. we were known. Like our the white people have done some very, very atrocious things, like just from our heritage. But the thing is today is what do we do different? Yeah. And uh you allow me to put aside any guilt. You allow me to just be with someone and that presence and that empathy that we get to share for each other is is really crucial right now. Yeah, I just wanna like encourage you and anyone else who is white listening to this. Like don't let the white guilt stop you from having a conversation because this is not just a white or black thing Mm -hmm. i was talking to a one of a person i really respect in my um you know black christian circle and he was just lamenting the god of like dude god where are you in all this Mm -hmm. and he was just listing all the names of the people who had you know passed away from police brutality and been killed and God like put it on his heart another name that he didn't list yep. and the name was Abel and mm-hmm. if you're unfamiliar with the story of Cain and Abel they're the sons of Adam and that was the first brother on brother crime yes and now here we are in 2020 and we're still seeing brother on brother crime yes and so it didn't start with white people it's not just a white versus black thing mm-hmm. it is just something that where sin is into the world and God's heart breaks every time something like this happens yeah and the other thing too is like when we remember that that that, that kind of code is written into our world, um, 
we can, I think, leverage our own emotions and check our own emotions. And the initial offense of that, the initial shock of that, we can process that. We can take that in, have emotions, have our conversations. And then we can also remember that we can also do things about it. Yeah. We do real things about and it. The last thing I'll add is you asked me, how do I you know, process the things I've been through without, you know, being angry and bitter at the police. Mm -hmm. It's it's really is the word of God where I'm able to lean on and be reminded that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We are not fighting against the police. Like there's spiritual warfare for our nation, for our country, for our world. And I try to pray and look beyond towards that and how we can, you know, eradicate systematic racism and just things that have been set up to legalize like what happens yeah. and understand that there's a spiritual attack on all of us too. Yeah. Cameron, thank you for sitting down with me, dude. I love you. Happy to be here. I can't wait to, uh, to do more of these kinds of things. Yeah. Just, uh, love the podcast and I'm excited to see where it goes. So thanks for having me. Cool, man. I appreciate that. Well guys, it's been Cameron Marshall and, uh, now we're going to transition. This episode is wrapping up for the Quarantine Storytellers podcast. And again, I just want to thank Cameron Marshall for taking the time to sit down with me and and, and talk about these and be vulnerable with these things. I know how difficult it can be, uh, speaking from a white person's perspective, to sit down with someone who doesn't look like you and get into that vulnerable space of sharing stories. I challenge no matter what the color of your skin is, find people that don't look like you sit down and have real conversations and tell stories. Again, stories are a vessel of empathy and allows us to feel for one another. I think empathy is one of the greatest things we have to teach people what it means to fight for justice. And that is always our challenge coming out of these episodes is to go and find someone and share stories. Keep fighting. We, I love this country. We are broken, we are in chaos right now, and I pray about this country every night I go to bed. But we will fight to see a better day. Until next time, we are the Quarantine Storytellers Podcast, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Until then, Godspeed. Godspeed.